Welcome to Decrypt, Asia's first blockchain and cryptocurrency podcast. I'm your host, Tushar. Each week, we take a deep dive into the Asian blockchain scene with investors, technologists, and industry insiders. Go to decrypt.asia to subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram to join in the discussions. Hi, guys. I'm here with Nick, who is one of the co-founders of Harmony Protocol. Uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Looking forward to talking about sharding and all things Harmony. Yeah, so good you mentioned sharding. Let's, uh, let's get right into it. Uh, so Harmony Protocol is a public blockchain. And like you rightly said, uh, the key value proposition is sharding. Some of our listeners who may not yet know what sharding is, could you briefly talk about what it is and why is it important? For sure. So people have probably heard a lot the word sharding. It's being thrown around by many different projects. Um, and our particular flavor of, of sharding is deep sharding. Um, that's what sets us apart from the rest of the sharding protocols. Uh, we're also proof of stake, which not every sharding protocol is. But first, uh, yeah, let's talk about why sharding is important. So sharding is this concept that comes from traditional databases originally. And it's this concept that if you have too much data to store in one server, you need to find some way of having multiple servers connect together. You imagine if you're Google and you're trying to store the entire internet, you need to, you won't be able to store that on one uh, computer. So sharding is really necessary when you try to scale databases. And in some ways, blockchain is a database. And as we've run into the limits of how much you can uh, process on one single blockchain, we've realized that we need to split it into multiple blockchains and run them side by side. Uh, so that's, that's the concept of sharding is that, you know, as you need more throughput, as you have more demands on the network, you add more shards, you add more nodes to the network to parallelize the blockchain and add more throughput. Right. And so there was this concept uh, that I think we briefly touched upon. We've interviewed Zilliqa in the past, which is, I think, one of the first public blockchains that kind of brought sharding into the fore. Uh, And so Zilliqa has managed to do what is called network sharding or transaction sharding, but they don't do what what is called state sharding, whereas you guys have managed uh, to achieve that. So I want to talk about how you actually achieve state sharding. But before that, could you explain what the difference between these two types of sharding is. So what is transaction sharding versus what is state sharding? Absolutely. So transaction sharding is the concept that we can parallelize the verification and validation of transactions that are going through the network. Uh, so that means that each shard uh, doesn't need to pay attention what the other shards uh, are doing as far as uh, approving transactions and making sure that they're legitimate. but uh, at the same time, the the beacon shard, or there may be some overseeing shard that is keeping track of the overall state of the network and keeping an eye on all this, the lower shards to make sure that there's no fraud happening. So the that that's transaction sharding. And, and as you may see in that example, the there's a there's sort of a bottleneck. The the beacon shard will inevitably have uh, have to keep track of all the state of the entire network. Uh, so the state being the, you know, the balances of, of accounts or the, the, the variables in smart contracts. So uh, as you add more shards, eventually, you know, the state shard, the, the, the beacon chain will run out of space, so to speak. So 
the, the, the difference between transaction sharding and state sharding is that in state sharding, you don't have uh, a single shard that acts as the bottleneck uh, that has to store the entire state of the, of the whole network. Instead, each shard keeps track of its own state. And that way, even as you add more shards, you don't have this, the bottleneck of, of one shard being overloaded with having to keep track of too much memory. So that's, that's the key difference. Um, and I'm, I'm not too familiar with uh, exactly Zilliqa's approach, but uh, in our approach, yeah, it, it's essentially, we, we figured out a way to make it such that the, the, the sharding is secure enough that we don't have to necessarily look after each shard uh, from the top level. Definitely the beacon chain will help to um, keep track of some certain things, but it doesn't have to know the full state of each sub shard. Right, uh, so I mean, kind of deeping, uh, digging a little bit deeper into what you just said. Um, so you said that, that there's actually no kind of um, place where you actually have the entire chain. So the entire chain is kind of sharded within, uh, is kept within each shard. So is it something like, is there something, some sort of mechanism where the shards are speaking to each other? It's like, how do you know the overall state? How do you know the overall state of the blockchain? Exactly, exactly. So that's another piece actually that people don't necessarily talk too much about, but there's also this idea of, um, I wanna say networking sharding and, or, or bandwidth sharding in terms of, or communi communication sharding is what I think I should call it, which is that in a lot of cases, the uh, beacon chain acts as a, a, a routing uh, sort of uh, uh, throughput, through point through which all the shards have to, in order to communicate to another shard, they send their transaction first to the beacon chain, which then sends it to the destination uh, shard. And the problem is that also becomes a bottleneck, right? Then the beacon chain, as you add more shards, has to route more and more transactions. So uh, what we use is a concept called Kademlia routing, which is uh, actually very popular in torrent systems. Um, it's a way of keeping track of a, a, a subgroup of peers with a topography that allows you to locate an endpoint peer in a sort of logarithmic number of steps. Um, so that, that, what that allows us to do is, is have the shards talk to each other in a sort of peer-to-peer -peer fashion, if you will, but uh, with, with a logarithmic scaling, meaning as you add more shards, it doesn't blow up. So um, that, that's another key part of it. And, and just to kind of dive a little bit more into how cross-shard transactions work, um, if I'm sending some, um, let's say some, some uh, Harmony 1 tokens from one shard to another, what first happens is I, uh, the, the, the first originating shard creates a lock on this balance. And then it sends the receipt of this lock transaction, like a proof that these funds have been locked here, and it sends it to the destination shard. The destination shard then verifies that this is a, a, a valid uh, lock, the proof is, is true and then they generate the, the funds on their own side. So it, it's sort of an atomic uh, thing. If the destination shard does not approve, then the funds will become unlocked uh, in the originating shard. So it's a way of, of transferring value or state between the shards in a way that uh, maintains security. Right, and is that how a standard transaction would look like? Um, not necessarily, so if you're, if you're within uh, I think the likelihood of cross-shard transactions is relatively high and depending on the way that you also, there's different optimizations you can make uh, in terms of putting certain 
um, function, certain uh, geographies or, or people or uh, smart contracts in one shard. So they have to, you can minimize the amount of cross shard communication that has to happen. But uh, there, a, a transaction that doesn't need to go cross shard can just stay within its own shard and not sort of uh, instigate any of this complex uh, stuff happening cross shard. Right. And uh, so again, to, I, I guess I, I don't want to go too deep and kind of lose the audience as well, but I still want to pick up on this point. So if I'm, if I'm an application developer, do I have to pick a particular shard on which I'm on top of which I'm building and I'm, am I able to leverage like different shards? Is that how it's built? Or is, so, is, yeah, or, you or, can... or is that a completely wrong way to think about it? So as an application developer, um, you can, you will deploy your smart contract to a particular shard. You, at the end of the day, your smart contract will have to exist on a, a certain shard. In I, theory, sorry, actually, you can- Sorry, uh, so, sorry. Um, and am I, as an application developer, picking which shard I want to deploy my smart contract on? Not necessarily. I think you could, you could uh, choose the address of the smart contract. It depends on which way the sharding is, is, is uh, performed. Um, in some ways, you could you could choose an address for the smart contract that places you in a certain shard. Um, but if if you're uh, you can you can always deploy multiple smart contracts on multiple shards as well. If you if that makes sense. But I think in many cases it it wouldn't make sense unless you run into the limits of throughput within your particular shard. Right. Um, so th taking a step back, I mean we've spoken. You know, we've I think we've mentioned the word sharding. I think 20, 30 times in the last 10 minutes we've been speaking, I think the bigger problem that we're trying to solve here is scalability, right? And there's mm -hmm. multiple ways to solve the scalability problem. Um, there's side chains, there's you know, delegated proof of stake consensus mechanism. Um, is there a particular reason why uh, you chose to go the sharding route? Yeah, so um, people probably have heard of this idea called the scalability trilemma. And the scalability trilemma is this idea that um, there's a trade-off, a tripartite trade-off between security, scalability, and decentralization. And um, many previous attempts to scale blockchains have resulted in uh, you know, a sacrifice on security or a sacrifice on decentralization. And in the past few years, and you know, hats off to um, the authors of Elastico, which are also the, the founders of Zilliqa, they, they were some of the first people to apply this concept of sharding to blockchains. And sharding became you know, a very promising approach in which you could actually achieve strong security and scalability without sacrificing decentralization. So if you think about an approach like EOS, for example, by comparison, they are choosing to limit the number of block producers to 21. Um, obviously, that gives them some form of scalability. Uh, and, and you could say they're secure, but um, they're really not very decentralized. If you only have 21 block producers. And then, in fact, that then, then in some ways, decentralization and security are sort of the same thing, um, depending on your definition of um, security. Because if you only have 21, in a political sense, it's less secure because if you only have 21 people who are kind of running the network, it's much easier to corrupt, which is less secure. Um, and if you think about another approach, let's say side chains, side chains uh, in, in a lot of ways, I think that they have in layer two solutions. I think they have a, a, a strong uh, 
reason to exist. And I think they will actually be layered on top of sharded protocols, but they make uh, oftentimes, uh, they, they sort of uh, divide the security. You can, in a sharded protocol, you can unify the security of all these different shards together into one cohesive whole. Whereas in a layer two solution, oftentimes you're sort of um, separating the security generated on layer two from the security on layer one. And, and layer two can leverage layer one, but layer two doesn't contribute to the security of layer one. So um, the, the whole, the beauty of sharding is essentially that um, you, you get the, the, at least so far, the best trade-off on this uh, three-way sort of uh, trilemma. And uh, I think the, the hardest part is actually that it becomes um, much more difficult from an engineering standpoint to implement, which is why it's taking these teams much longer to you know, ship uh, these sharded protocols than it is to build something like EOS or um, a, you know, plasma type of solution. But that's, that's right. the idea. That's why people have taken the sharded approach because so far it's the best thing that we've been able to come up with. Right, uh, that makes absolute sense. Uh, you did allude to the fact that uh, you have staking mechanism within your protocol. Could you talk about how that works? What are the staking rewards and what does it take to be a validator? Yeah, so uh, another important part of um, what we think defines scalability is not just throughput. So people really have fixated on TPS as a metric that defines how good or bad a blockchain is. But for us, it's not just about throughput. It's also about latency, it's meaning time to finality. So when I send a transaction, how quickly does it go through? And then finally, it's also about cost. Um, how expensive is it for me to send a transaction? How, how expensive is it to use this you know, public utility, uh, this blockchain? And so that's where this proof of stake comes in. It's a really important decision that we made early on is to go with proof of stake because your security um, mechanism is no longer dependent on burning a lot of electricity and buying a lot of very expensive hardware. Um, your, your security is now generated through the value of the token itself. So there's actually really, I think, it, it's a very useful um, uh, new tool that people have uh, developing these new sort of uh, generation of blockchain. So we, yeah, we have a proof of stake protocol and we've intentionally made it very, uh, we've designed our protocol so it's, it only requires a low resource node if you want to join the network. So that way, um, A, it's not as expensive as having a, a super node like uh, EOS where you have to have you know, top of the line hardware. Uh, and second of all, it, it becomes uh, more decentralized. We'll have more nodes with lower resources, but together, because we parallelize and add all the resources together, we have that added benefit. But um, the, the, uh, the, the rewards and the economics are still in development. Uh, for the most part, and I'm not supposed to talk about, I'm not supposed to promise any return on investment, but if you stake, you can, uh, you will earn block rewards, so it will offset your, uh, the, the cost of running the node, and you'll have, uh, you'll be able to participate in the network. And what does it take to be a validator? So what it takes to be a validator is you will need a, a minimum number of Harmony tokens, it's somewhat dependent. We have sort of this thresholded proof of stake um, idea, which means that um, your, if you make the threshold of enough stake, you will be given one voting share in the protocol. And uh, each shard will have around 400 to 600 voting shares. And um, 
uh, with your voting share, you get to participate and validate blocks and earn rewards. Um, as far as the hardware resources are concerned, um, we've been running our nodes on AWS T3 medium instances, which have roughly two cores and four gigabytes of memory. So it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty minimal. Uh, running a node like that for a month is probably less than uh, $50, I would, I would, I would uh, guess. So it's, it, it, you could probably even run it on, on your laptop at home. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't want to be using your laptop at the same time. So, um, but that's, that's sort of the, the idea. It doesn't take very much. Um, we're also engaging a lot of the top staking as a service uh, providers in the space. And even ones who are more taking, that are taking more of a cloud approach where you can create an account and spin up your own node in the cloud with very uh, little effort. Um, but you don't have to actually give your tokens to some other uh, company to stake them on your behalf. So that we're, we're, we're really trying to build out a validator community and, and most of all, keep it decentralized so that you know, people don't have to be experts to participate and that we don't end up with these you know, monopolies over all the stake, that we have this ability to uh, you know, fall back to just normal hardware, I think is really important for the security and robustness of the protocol. Right, um, so we've spoken about sharding. I wanna switch gears a little bit, and scalability as well. I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about this other problem that exists with a lot of the public blockchains and that's governance. Uh, especially mm. because a lot of these public blockchains, the objective is to be decentralized. Um, mm -hmm. and there's, there's been huge debates going uh, on either side of the camp. There's the off-chain uh, camp where people feel that you know governance still needs to be, we live in the real world and governance still needs to be kind of off-chain. There is also an on-chain mm -hmm. camp. Where do you guys fall and how do you guys see yourselves evolving to also ensure that you guys stay decentralized, if not initially, then sort of in the longer run? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think initially, um, there's so much changing and there's so much work still to be done. Um, I think every protocol needs to have some form of leadership um, and needs to have some way of making decisions that, that can be executed faster. Um, otherwise, I think you could end up in sort of a, a, a lockdown uh, in the same way that, that Bitcoin is. And I think it's fine for Bitcoin because um, it doesn't need to evolve. It's actually sort of found its niche and found its use case. But for a protocol like ours that needs to constantly improve, um, and we need to be able to uh, update and adapt much faster. So I think in, at the beginning, there will probably still be quite a bit of leadership uh, from the team. But of course, we'll keep a lot of um, the consideration for our community because at the end of the day, you don't want your community, you know, the, 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 what gives your blockchain value is, is the community and, and what, what they want. So we're going to focus not on, you know, any sort of political things, but on how to keep the protocol competitive and how to keep it uh, state of the art. Um, but eventually, and, and even at the outset, we will, um, we will have on-chain governance mechanisms in the form of voting. So using sort of basic kind of uh, uh, token voting. I, I think the, the issue is we would love to do more interesting things, but until we found a really good solution for on-chain identity, it's hard to implement a lot of these more futuristic uh, governance ideas regarding 
um, let's say quadratic voting or, or other ideas that people have, have thrown out there, it's a little bit more difficult to, to implement something more interesting than just pro rata token, token voting. But uh, we're definitely, I think governance in the long run is a huge issue. And, and in fact, one of, our, um, one of our networking engineers has worked a lot on internet protocols and, and seen the governance of how, you know, when, when a new standard is rolled out for internet protocols or for crypto kinds of um, security things, there's, there's a very like uh, intense process that goes on. And, and there's sort of also a very much a software element uh, of trying to make that transition very smooth. So he's, he's been thinking a lot about how to take the lessons from these more traditional industries that are, have been around much longer and implement them uh, in a blockchain uh, setting. So I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. I think governance is definitely one of the most important topics, but um, I think we're still at a very early stage where um, a lot of these ideas, we need more infrastructure and we need to remain nimble at the same time. So we'll see uh, how it evolves, but I would say that we're very, uh, very careful about the, the, this and, and we know the impact that it has on the overall uh, global community that we're trying to build. Right, um, so again, so I think, so we've spoken about scalability and governance. Uh, I wanna move on to the application layer and uh, kind of find out what kind of applications uh, are Sort of already in the pipeline that are looking to build on top of harmony or what kind of entrepreneurs would you guys like to attract in the future to be building on top of harmony sure so we've gotten a lot of interest um, from enterprises as well as uh, more dapp style of, of projects and so we've signed uh, over 30 partnerships in the last few months and we're seeing a lot of momentum because um, the, the truth is that a lot of a lot of projects, both enterprises and and these dApps, really do care about scalability. It really is a pain point. Um, they want a, a blockchain that gives a better user experience, meaning that there's faster uh, finality. They also want a blockchain that is not as expensive and one that can actually scale to, uh, you know, having let's say millions of users. Um, and we, so we, we really have designed our blockchain to fit those needs. And, and so it's been really nice to see that uh, the reception is, is good so far. So we're in, in talks with um, protocols, projects in the DeFi space, um, stable coins, people doing uh, security tokens, decentralized exchanges. We are also in, in talks with a lot of gaming companies. Um, we have Animoca that we've signed on as well as a, a platform called Contentos that leverages a, actually a traditional uh, app uh, with 60 million monthly active users. And they're really trying to uh, roll out more blockchain games onto their platform and get these 60 million uh, active users uh, playing on blockchain games. Uh, and then finally, we have a lot of different enterprise use cases and, and sort of more, more in the public sector, for example, use cases around um, land registry or around tracking of pharmaceuticals. We signed a partnership with a, um, a company doing FDA approved uh, pilot of tracking uh, pharmaceutical products uh, as they travel around the world so that the doctors can verify the provenance of these uh, pharmaceuticals at the endpoint before they're used. So uh, it's a really a broad range of different use cases, but I think 
um, I think that we'll be able to scale and, and bring on previously, I think there's a lot of people that have kind of been held back from entering blockchain because of the scalability issues. And I think that um, once we've demonstrated a few of these, there will be a lot more knocking at our door and wanting to uh, give it a try themselves. Sure. And if I'm already an existing application and I'm facing some scalability issues and I want to kind of port over to Harmony, how is that process? I mean, is that going to be an easy process um, or is, is there going to be you know, significant steps required in terms of um, doing that migration? It'll be really uh, straightforward and easy. So um, we are EVM compatible. So almost you can take your, you know, D app and your contracts off the shelf from wherever they are in Ethereum and port them over to our system with very, very little effort. Um, we've also built out all the same uh, tooling. We've, we've borrowed a lot of the tooling from the Ethereum ecosystem. So you'll have Truffle, MetaMask, Remix, all the things that developers have come to really rely on when they're building their D applications. So uh, it, we're trying to make it as frictionless as possible because you know, as I said, obviously the, um, the cost, the throughput, and the uh, latency are very important considerations, but the app developers also very much care about the ecosystem and the tooling. So tooling we have, and the ecosystem is all about attracting a critical mass of, of uh, applications onto our protocol. And for now, I would say Ethereum has by far the largest and ro most robust uh, ecosystem of protocols and developers. So. Um, by by piggybacking onto this EVM and Ethereum ecosystem, hopefully we can grow our ours that much faster. Right. Um, in terms of fundraising, you're obviously having your token sale on Binance uh, very soon, which is quite exciting. Um, but where are you in terms of your development? When can we expect Harmony to go live? So Harmony will start a throttled mainnet launch. So it's sort of between a testnet and a mainnet, but we're calling it the sort of throttle mainnet launch, meaning that people will be able to start earning uh, tokens as validators um, on our network uh, that will be converted in a fraction. Uh, so you'll say, let's say 10% of the tokens that you earn in block rewards will, will actually turn into real mainnet tokens. Uh, but we'll be launching that throttle mainnet in June. So it, it's coming up very soon. And we think this is really important because this is how we're going to really it's not about you know some saving up and launching only when everything's perfect. We believe in sort of the iterative software development process where you learn as you go. Um, and then I think when we're stable and we're secure and we feel very confident, that's when we'll kind of flip the switch and go full mainnet. But it's, it's more of a gradual process. And we want to incentivize people to participate in the meantime because the only way that we'll know how our protocol is performing, you know, test nets only take you so far. You need to actually have something that's live and which the public is interacting with. So uh, yeah, so we'll be launching the throttle mainnet uh, this June and slowly ramping up to the full mainnet uh, down the line. But uh, yeah, the, the, the IEO is ongoing now and um, we'll finish, I think on May 26th, something like that. Um, and we're really excited because I think this will enable us to reach a, a much broader audience. Uh, it's really important for a protocol to have as many stakeholders as possible because the stakeholders are the ones that are really gonna spread the word for you and be your evangelists. And that's what's gonna also attract more developers to the platform is 
in some ways, when you have more stakeholders, you have a, a larger user base, you have a larger footprint. So I think this is a really uh, strategic and important uh, new development for us as we try to build out a global ecosystem. Yeah, we'll try to make sure that we uh, time the release of the podcast uh, along with uh, before your token sale actually ends. Uh, but let's uh -huh. it really depends on my editors. Um, so before we wrap up, one final question. So the, this podcast is called Decrypt Asia and Asia is turning out to be, you know, one of the, or if not the most important uh, location globally, as far as this industry goes. Um, I want to kind of know if you have some particular or uh, some important plans for this part of the world. I know you guys are based in the Valley, but are you, are you kind of considering opening up an office in this part of the world? So that's a really good point. And actually, I, before I joined Harmony, I was based in Hong Kong for a year and a half. And I actually go back to Hong Kong every few months. I have a lot of friends there. Um, so I think Asia is really uh, top of the mind for us. We realize that there's a lot of uh, benefit to being in both the West and Asia. I think in where we are in the Bay Area, there's a lot of uh, projects and teams being built. But I think there's a lot of adoption happening on the other side of the Pacific. So we've been out to Asia now, um, I think three times in the last year, doing roadshows in Southeast Asia, obviously Singapore, Hong Kong, Vietnam, um, and Indonesia. We've also done a lot through China and Korea. So Asia to us is, is a place where there's a very large user base and there's a, there's a population that's hungry to uh, adopt the new latest technology. And there's also a lot of uh, companies there that want to be the leaders in this new space. I think that, you know, uh, for the, the internet revolution, the U.S. had a bit of a, a head start. And in this case, um, Asian uh, companies are, and, and countries are really wanting to be at the, 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 the front lines, uh, at the bleeding edge. And so that's why Asia to us is a very exciting uh, place to go and visit. And I think eventually we will be opening offices. We already have uh, remote communities in a lot of uh, Asian countries, including India and uh, Indonesia and Vietnam, China, Korea. So we're, we're uh, definitely trying to expand our footprint there. And, and, and we'll be also trying to launch um, local, local companies. For example, in Korea, we're talking to a company about building a, a, a Korean entity that will be able to um, sign contracts and help grow with enterprises, enterprise adoption uh, locally in Korea, because I think there's a lot of advantages to having a local entity in these countries for, for the different benefits and the, the way that the sort of political systems work. So definitely Asia is a huge focus for our team. And, and I also want to mention that um, most of our team is Asian originally. So um, Stephen, our CEO, is originally from Hong Kong. We have uh, three engineers who uh, originally grew up in China. We have a, uh, one from Vietnam, two from Korea, uh, two from India. So Asia is very much in our DNA. Um, and, and so you'll, you'll be seeing a lot of us there as well. Awesome. Yeah, uh, looking forward to it. Um, I think that's a great note to end the interview on as well. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time. It was an absolute pleasure to speak. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And uh, thanks everyone for listening.
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Telegram, and subscribe to our newsletter on decrypt.asia. This is your host, Tashar. Thank you for listening.